Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Episode 381. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Women and Aliens Month continues on the Drabblecast this week with our story, Unathi Battles the Black Hairballs, by Lauren Bukis. Lauren Bukis is an award-winning, best-selling South African novelist who also writes comics, screenplays, and TV shows. She's the author of Broken Monsters, The Shining Girls, Zoo City, Moxieland, Maverick, Extraordinary Women from South Africa's Past, and the graphic novel Fairest, The Hidden Kingdom. The story is narrated for you by Iba Armankis and produced by Drabblecast co-producer Adam Prout. The rest of the credits I'll read after the story, as to not give anything away. So, without further ado, we bring you Unathi Battles the Black Hairballs by Lauren Bukis. Sunafi Battles the Black Hairballs by Lauren Bukis. Sunafi was singing karaoke when the creature attacked Tokyo. Or rather, she was about to sing karaoke. Was in fact about to be the very first person in Shibuya's Big Echo to break in the newly uploaded Britney hip-hop remix of The Spice Girls. Tell me what you want, what you really, really want. It was admittedly early in the day to be breaking out the microphone, but Unathi was on shore leave, and the truth was that she and the rest of Psycho Squadron weren't up early so much as they were still going from last night, lubricated on a slick of sake that ran from here to Tokohama. Unathi stepped up onto the table in their private booth, briefly giving her Madota a flash of white briefs under her pleated miniskirt. When she was on duty as Flight Sergeant of the Squadron, she kept strictly to her maroon and gray flight suit, or the casual comfort of her military-issued tracksuit. In her private life, however, Unathi tended to be outrageous. Back in Joburg, before she'd been recruited to the most elite mecha squadron on the planet, she'd hung out at 44 Stanley and Carfax, where she'd been I'm a Kip Kip to the max. Named for the cheap, multicolored popcorn, the neo-pantsula gangster punk aesthetic had her pairing purple skin-tight jeans with eye-bleeding oranges and greens and a pair of leopard print heels that, together with her mohawk, added five inches to her petite frame. In her newly adopted home, she tended towards punk Lolita. Not some Gwen Stefani Harajuku wannabe Lolita punk either. In Civi, she wore a schoolgirl skirt cut from an antique kimono that survived the bombing of Hiroshima, according to the garment dealer's providence. And she'd grown her hair out into little twists that were more combat-friendly than her mohawk. But the highlight of her look was a pair of knee-high, white patent combat boots made from the penis leather of a whale she had slaughtered herself. Now, standing on the karaoke booth table, the light of a disco ball glittered behind her like a halo. As she raised the mic to her perfect pierced lips, time shifted into glorious slow-mo. 
Well, maybe. That was just the impression of First Lieutenant Ryu Nakamura, a street fighter in his spare time and in love with flight surgeon Nafi Mafabe, like a plant is in love with photosynthesis. Around her, Ryu found that time went gooey at the edges, like Unagi on a hot summer's day. Unfortunately, so did his tongue, hanging limp and useless in his mouth in her proximity, unless he was responding to a direct order. He'd been planning to spill his guts about what was in his heart via a romantic duet, already queued on karaoke machine. Starships, nothing's gonna stop us now. But that was before a flailing, phallic tentacle ripped through the wall in the Big Echo, sending glass and brick and people flying. The tentacle was monstrous, a thick and glossy tendril of black hair the diameter of a compact Japanese car. It was equipped with eviscerating spikes and, on the bulbous eyeless head, a mouthful of spiny black teeth. The force of the initial impact flipped over the table Unathi was standing on, sending her crashing to the floor. She hit the ground head first with a crack like a rupturing tectonic plate. A moment later, the table smashed down onto her chest, driving the air out of her lungs. The black bubbles of a mild concussion popped across her vision. In the background, Brittany wrapped the Spice Girls classic over a thud while she beat. While Uthani struggled to get up, the tentacle made sushi out of the psycho squadron. The snap chief engineer sat to his spine so violently that his vertebrae erupted through his stomach. He twitched and flopped obscenely, only inches away from her on the carpet patterned with a rabbit-faced Pikachu. Unathi could only watch helplessly as a spike gutted Ensign Tanaka and another cord Corporal Suzuki in half. And then, the tentacle bit off Ryu's head in one neat snap of those spiny teeth. The karaoke jukebox clicked over the starship duet. Looking into your eyes, I see a paradise. And that might have been true if Ryu still had eyes. Or for that matter, a head. His body stood swaying for a moment, like an indecisive drunk. And then a bright hot jet of blood fountained from the stump of his neck, spraying Unathi in the face like some vampire bukake video. She managed to suck in enough air to scream. She'd had an inkling of his scratch. It was in the way he blushed and showed all his teeth and scratched the back of his head whenever he spoke to her. The cheesy duet cemented it. And now he was dead. The whole psycho squadron was dead. And worse, there was blood and spilt sake on her white, patent, whale penis leather boots. She shoved the table off her chest and yanked herself to her feet, drawing her saber. But the tentacle was already withdrawn, slithering back through the carnage. On the jukebox, Starship sang about the world's falling apart, about making it more heart to heart. Too late now, Unathi thought. Someone is gonna fucking pay! Unathi growled in the back of her throat. She vaulted the upturned table and the still flip-flopping Chief Engineer Sato and leapt through the smashed remains of what had once been a wall. She landed in a ninja crouch in her heeled boots and looked up to see the creature looming above the couture capital of Shibuya 109, a mall that made Santon City look like a Hong Kong flea market. The creature resembled a Godzilla-sized hairball, matted with blood. Inside the tangle of black hair, gasping mouths lined with rows of shark's teeth gnashed open and closed. Occasionally, a frail human arm would extend from the rolling hirsute mass, as if calling for help, only to be swallowed back into the thick of it. Tendrils of hair thrashed from the thing's body, like an epileptic cartoon octopus, leaving gashes ripped through the high-rises, laying waste to historic pagodas and skyscrapers alike. Unathi got to her feet and started running. 
Not towards the creature, but towards her mecha stashed eight blocks away on Takashita Street. The only place she could find parking. The giant robot, a ghost VF3, was painted in zebra stripes as a little homage to her hometown. It was sitting dormant, exactly as she'd left it. Bar the parking ticket pasted onto the ergonomic claw of the mecha's left foot. Unathi yanked it off, folded it into an origami unicorn, and left it on the pavement as a little fuck you for the meter maid. No doubt, like all of Tokyo's public servants, an android could only dream of being human. She scrambled up the front of the robot, using the multiple revolving turrets of the massive chest cannon as footholds, only to spend the next five minutes sitting on the mecha's armored shoulder, searching through her oversized Louis Vuitton bag for keys. They were right at the bottom, sandwiched between her Hello Kitty vibrator and a Naruto from Bento Box containing last night's dinner. She bleep bleeped the immobilizer. With a hydraulic hiss and an actuator hum, the robot's blank-faced head folded back into its shoulders, revealing the cockpit. Unathi pounced into the pilot seat and started flipping switches. Beneath her, the ghost VF3 started to thrum as the engines powered up. The decorative samurai armor spines on its back flipped down and fanned out to become interlocking fighter jet wings. The whole street was vibrating now with a throbbing force of the engine. Windows in the neighboring skyscrapers were rattling. Unathi happily hummed the Top Gun theme to herself while she calculated the Sudoku puzzle in the virtual display unit that would unlock the VF3's weapon systems. Weapons activated. A serene female voice said as Unathi plugged in the last digit, a four. Like the four men of Saito's squadron lying in pools of their own blood and spinal fluid back in the big echo. With a grimace, she hit the thrusters, and the ghost VF3 burst into the sky, leaving a crater behind in the tarmac. The origami unicorn caught fire. The battle was a blur, literally, possibly because she was still drunk. There were sweeping colors and motion lines as the ghost VF3 launched towards the evil hairball. There was a shuddering, frame by frame, slow-mo, as one of the tentacles smashed into the mecha. Another as the VF3 doubled over from the blow and catapulted backwards and straight through Shibuya 109. In the streets below, ducking the falling rubble and flaming tattered ruins of high couture, fashionable teenage girls screamed in an agony of loss. Inside the cockpit, Unathi grabbed the controls and broke out her nasty Tsotsato. Come on, come on, Masuna Kanyoko! Until the ghost VF3 wrenched itself free from Shibuya 109, leaving a mecha-shaped imprint in the rubble. One of her wings had snapped right off at the impact. For the love of Kawhi! Unathi cursed, pulling up the system's diagnostic check. They sure didn't make them like they used to. She had told her superiors at Macross High Command that they should buy Korea. Apart from the broken wing, which would throw her flight patterns for a loop, the damage wasn't too serious. Some minor bruising on the VF-3's Sididian heat diffusers, an annoying fritz on the rear-facing starboard camera visual systems, but at least the reaver cannon hadn't taken a hit. Unafi yanked the joystick forward and the VF-3 bounded down the street towards the hairball, leaving a trail of cracked concrete under every armored crew footfall. And at least one squash team fashionista. Unathi awoke, feeling as if the Oni of Hangwriters had performed his squatting toilet routine in her mouth. She sat up, her vision still blurry, and immediately started hacking up blood. She wiped her hand across her mouth and looked around. The world oozed in and out of focus, 
A shadowy figure leaned towards her and resolved himself into a mild-looking, middle-aged man wearing glasses, his hand extended to offer her a handkerchief. Here, he said, as she dabbed at the bloodstains around her mouth. From the carpet, a black cat with one white ear looked up at her curiously. There was jazz playing quietly in the background. Miles Davis, she guessed. But then, her knowledge of jazz was pretty much limited to Miles Davis. Where am I? What happened? She said, handing him back the gobby, bloodied handkerchief. The man folded it up and tucked it into her pocket. Perhaps you should tell me, the man said, tilting his head at the smoking VF3 rep lying sprawled in the ruins of what had once been a tidy little kitchen. Actually, it was only part of the mecca. The head, one shoulder, and the ripped chassis of the half-chest cavity partially melted to fuse with the shredded remnants of the reaper camp. Nafi felt a hitch in her throat at the sight. First, her boots. Now, this. She closed her eyes. The memory of what happened came in polaroid flashes of action. The ghost VF3 crashing down into Shubuya Station. The hairball swallowing up half a train which disappeared into one of those gnashing mouths like it was a tunnel. The VF3 seizing the nearest thing to hand which just happened to be a panty vending machine and hurling it at the beast. Scorched panties drifting down through the sky. Launching into the sky, locked together like fighting hawks, her damaged wings sending them spiraling in crazy loops. And then, weirdest of all, in the moment just before two tentacles seized the legs and chest of the ghost, VF3 and twisted, shearing through metal with a horrible, mangled screech, she had plunged the Mecca's hands into the heart of the thing and yanked the hair apart like a curtain, revealing a multicolored, smiley-faced flower. Would you like some spaghetti? The man asked. He ducked under the sparking wiring of the VF3's amputated arm to the stove, miraculously still intact, where a pulse bubbled. Hi, Baba. I have to get back. I have to destroy that thing. Nothing snapped, lurching to her feet. You shouldn't go into battle on an empty stomach, he said mildly, dishing out a bowl of spaghetti for himself. He added fresh basil. Nothing narrowed her eyes. You know... For someone who just had the flaming wreckage of a mecha crash through his kitchen, you're being suspiciously calm about all this. Who the hell are you? Oh, I'm a writer. I used to work for an advertising agency, but I left. Not for any particular reason, I just didn't like it. What do you like? Nafi said, still suspicious. I like music. I like to cook. I like to jog. And you? Who am I, or what do I like? Let's start with the first. The question made Unathi feel suffocated. Mecha capturing and monster battling aside, I guess I'm just a girl from Soweto. That must be nice, the writer said. The phone rang. It seemed to have an impatient tone. Oh, excuse me one moment. He ducked back under the Mecha's arm and went down the hall to pick up the phone. Gray, slim, and somehow nostalgic. Hello, he said into the receiver, and then, you again. I thought I told you I don't have time for these phone games. 
He listened for a moment, and then held the phone to Unathi. That's for you. Unathi limped over, holding her side. She definitely broke her rib. Maybe seven. She took the phone receiver and held it to her ear. Hello. A woman's voice said. It was a serene voice, like Hermeka's vocal system. Hi, said Uthani, taken aback. Did you have some of Haruki's spaghetti? No, Unathi said. You should have some. He's an excellent cook. You'll like it. Excuse me, do I know you? Unathi is getting annoyed now. Yes, we've met many times. Have I mentioned I'm naked? I just got out of the shower. Oh, great. Phone sex. Like she needed that. Have I mentioned I have a giant hairball to track down and destroy before it consumes the whole city? Oh, no. No, you hadn't. Perhaps you should go do that, the woman said. Is there some kind of point to this phone call? Unathi thought about hanging up, but there was something eerily familiar about the woman's voice. The situation was eerily familiar now. Not like deja vu exactly, but like she'd seen it in a movie or maybe read it in a book. Not really. I just wanted to say hello. Hello and goodbye. Oh, and you should go to the suicide forest. It's beautiful this time of year. What? Ayokigara. It's under Mount Fuji. I know where it is. I think it might be helpful for you. Well, that's all. The woman said pleasantly, and then goodbye. Unthani listened to the dial tone for a moment, then replaced the receiver. What was that about? She asked Haruki. I don't know. She phoned sometimes. I don't mind so much. She said I should visit Ayokigara. Why don't you say that? I don't know. You tell me. She's your mysterious lady phone caller. Well, maybe we should check it out. I know a shortcut. It's a way through the alley. He led her out the back door into a small garden behind the house and helped her climb over the breeze block wall into an alley that ran parallel to the backs of the houses. Black and white cat jumped up onto the wall and watched. I call it an alley, but it's not really an alley, Haruki said. It's also not a way. It was technically a way should have an entrance or an exit, but this doesn't. It's also not a cul-de-sac, because a cul-de-sac should have an entrance. This is more like a dead end. You're going to be the dead end if you don't stop talking and get me to Aokikara. Alright, alright, the writer said. Sorry. He was quiet for a while, leading her behind the houses. Both ends were fenced off with barbed wire. He was right. It wasn't a way or a cul-de-sac. Above, in the trees, a bird sang like a wind-up toy or a spring unraveling. The cat jumped down and patted after them. They came to a well and she helped him push the cover off. The cover was made of wood, faintly damp with moss that had grown over the edges, with a metal handle set into it. Inside the well it was very dark. A metal ladder descended into the black. It looked new, well-maintained. There was a rich, cloying smell, like Ceron gas or dead bodies. Maybe both. Ladies first, Haruki said. The cat jumped onto his shoulder. It looked like he was coming along for the ride. Nothing sighed, looking down at her boots. At this rate, she was going to have to go on another way out. Nothing counted 439 rungs until she stepped down onto the lonely earth. 
It's man-made, Haruki said, climbing off the ladder and brushing the dirt off his hands. Possibly an old storm drain, or maybe it connects to the subway, an abandoned line that used to lead to Ayagukara. Or straight to hell, Nathi said grimly. That seems unlikely, Haruki said. The cat jumped down off his shoulder and patted ahead. It looked back at them with an inquisitive meow, as if to say, Well, are you coming? They followed the cat, and after thirty minutes or so, the tunnel opened into a cement bunker with a rusted metal door that was welded shut. There were signs that someone had been there recently. There were paintings stacked up against the walls. The top was of a bunny girl in red heels carrying a suitcase. In the corner, there was a life-size sculpture of an anime boy with spiky yellow hair and a death grip on his erect penis, jizzing spunk around his head. I recognize this, Unathi said. It was hard to forget a sculpture of a naked anime boy with a sperm lasso. This is the work of that art factory, Kai Kai Kiki, the one run by that famous guy who formed a collective of hungry young talent to mass-produce a range of work. What's his name again? Before the alien Zoltari attacked and Unathi had been enlisted, She'd gone through rigorous geisha training as part of her cultural immersion, which had left her surprisingly well-versed in a number of suitable conversation topics, from fine art to politics, and a thousand ways to slow-brew a cup of jasmine tea. Ah, uh, my namesake, the writer said. Takashi Murakami. That's the guy. Nathi flicked the painting of the bunny girl forward to look at the one behind. It featured a lunatic grinning flower, with rainbow petals. It was almost identical to the glowing face at the heart of the hairball. It was trademark Murakami. And I definitely recognize this, she said. But why is this here? Never mind that, the writer said, yanking at the rest of the door. This door is stuck. Not for long. Nathi grinned and broke it off its hinges with one well-placed karate kick, another advantage of the cultural immersion program. They emerged into a forest, sunlight streaked through the leaves and pale golden bars. Mount Fuji loomed through the foliage, tufts of cloud ringed under the peak like a hula hoop. The cat stopped to lick itself. The wind in the leaves sounded like ghosts laughing. It's lovely. Unathi said, surprised. That was before she saw the bodies hanging from the trees. Their faces black, their eyes popping. Asphyxiation does that. They were hanging from belts, or cables, or the kind of mesh straps you might use to secure a mattress to the roof of your car, which Unathi had done a few weeks ago when helping Corporal Suzuki move into his aquarium pod. The suicide forest, the cat mused. Second only to the Golden Gate Bridge in the self-murder popularity stakes. Partially inspired by the tragic double suicide ending of the novel Kurojikai, or Black Sea of Trees. I didn't know you could talk, Unathi said. I can't, said the cat. It licked itself huffily and gave her a black look from beneath its eyebrow whiskers. Why are they all bald, mused the writer. Unathi started. He was right. Whatever state of decay, whether their faces were still intact, or the birds and squirrels had eaten their eyes and lips, 
whether their clothes marked them disgraced salarymen or despondent housewives or lovesick teens playing at crude jukai. Every corpse had one thing in common. Their heads were entirely shaved. Something weird was going on, Unathi said, subconsciously reaching for a joystick and the diplomatic power of the Reaver Autocannon's 22mm uranium-depleted tank-killer bullets the size of milk bottles. No shit, Sherlock, the cat said, and then pretended like it hadn't, earnestly rubbing a saliva-moistened paw over one ear, and then the other. Shh, what's that sound? Uki said. Nothing listened. It was a buzzing whine, like a sick lawnmower, or the purr of a Hello Kitty vibrator that was running on maximum speed. This way, she said, and ran off between the trees, quiet as a ninja in a library. The buzzing sound was emanating from an electric hair clipper, wielded by a young man in a neon green jumpsuit. He was dangling from absolute gear, with his feet wedged on either side of the unfortunate corpse he was shooting. It was a young mother, judging by the burp claws still draped over her shoulder. No doubt, the victim of social shame, inflicted by one of the cruel mom cliques that ruled the city's playgrounds. As the dead woman's long black hair parted company from her scalp, it came to life. It writhed and twisted, so that the green jumpsuit guy had to wrap it around his wrist to keep it from slithering away into the sky. Hey you, Scully, what are you doing? Not yelled which was perhaps not the most prudent of plans. The young man started so badly that he lost his grip on the anchor line. The rope screamed through the Caribbean. He grabbed for it, but it burnt through his palm and came free, dropping him out of the air. He landed on his neck with a sickly crunch. The spasming hair wiggled free of his wrist and slithered away into the mossy hollows beneath the trees. Is he... The writer asked. Dead. Nothing confirmed, kicking the corpse. The hair clipper was still buzzing in his hand. Now what? You could always follow the extension cable, the cat said. We could always follow the extension cable, Nothing said, ignoring the cat. She yanked at the electronic cord attached to the vibrating hair clipper and started reeling it in. The cable wound between trees, over glens, and at some point, with little heed for electrical safety, right through a babbling brook. I wonder why they didn't just use batteries, Haruki said, jumping over the brook. The cat was back to riding on his shoulder. We ran out, a voice replied from the shadowy glade up ahead. Nothing in the rider stepped into a ring of trees to find a slight man, with glasses and a rumpled suit, sitting atop an oozing mound with Mickey Mouse ears, pointy fangs, and gargantuan cartoon eyes swiveling in opposite directions. Bright paint leaked down the sides of the thing and saturated the grass beneath it in camouflage whorls of color. It grinned at them and rolled its eyes. Beside the mound, an oversized generator hummed happily. A tangle of extension cords like Medusa dreadlocks running away from it to feed power to other hair clippers in other parts of the forest, shearing other suicides of their bewitched locks. Gathered around the mound were young men and women in various shades of neon and states of industry. They'd formed an assembly line of sorts. On the far side, 
Apprentice hipster artists in gray jumpsuits sat at workbenches beside boxes and boxes of bowling balls. They removed the balls, stripped off the paint, sanded down the surface, and delivered them down to the next workbench, where a girl with bright pink hair and huge goggles airbrushed the iconic smiley flower designs onto the balls. The flower balls piled up next to her, blinking happily while they waited their turn at the next station, which aptly resembled the sumo ring. Several huge men and women wrestled with tangles of writhing suicide hair to wrap it onto the flower-faced bowling balls. The hair resisted. As they watched, a tentacle of hair squirmed out of one man's grasp. Look out! He yelped. The hair slapped him aside. He flew out of the ring and landed with a fleshy thud at Uthani and Uruki's feet. Uh, he said. Back in the ring, an artist in a red jumpsuit grabbed the end of the hair and cracked it like a whip. The hair collapsed limply to the ground, stunned. Two other artists leapt onto it and wrapped it round the flower face before it could recover. The final stage was a wooden platform like a dock. Cute girls and boys in Sailor Moon outfits released the finish artwork into the sky. Bye! Sayonara! Get big and strong, you hear? Have a nice life! They waved their hankies in salutation as the hairballs drifted off like balloons, already springing gnashing mouths and spined tentacles. It was horrible. It was brutal. The man atop the mound gave the mega pilot and the writer and the cat a chance to take it all in. Then he stood up and threw his arms wide. Welcome! I am Takahashi, and this is my heap. I am king of it, an all-artistic endeavor. So you're the guy, Unami snarled. Obviously! The cat rolled its eyes. The slight bespeckled man smirked. He stood up and skidded down the side of his mud creature, leaving behind a swath of blues and greens. It groaned and swiveled its eyes to watch him. It depends, the man said. By the guy? Do you mean one of the most challenging and thought-provoking artists of the 21st century? Who innovated the super flat style of combining the best of otaku culture and Japanese pop aesthetics? whose factory puts Andy Warhol's little art manufacturing industry to shame, whose art has the capacity to shock, to titillate, to overturn the world as we know it? I mean, are you the fucker responsible for ruining my boots? Your boots? Takahashi shifted his gaze from Unathi's tits to her patent boots, which were no longer remotely white. They were splattered with blood and mud and spinal fluid and bits of writhing, haunted hair. Is that whale penis leather? Takahashi admired them. Killed it myself, Unathi beamed. Divine! Unathi turned grim. And one of your hairball creatures has destroyed them, along with half of Tokyo, and the whole of Psycho Squadron, although technically they're replaceable. I mean, we have new Academy graduates practically begging to be recruited. What can I say? The artist shrugged. Good art exacts a toll. Humba Ufa, exact this, motherfucker. 
Nothi said as she pulled out her lady-sized 357 magnum from the holster on the side of her boot and pressed it to his temple. Wait, Wait yelled the cat and the writer at the exact same time. You got a better idea? She said, her finger itchy on the trigger. Don't you know anything about art? Haruki said. Look at him. He wants to die. And grow bigger and more infamous and ravage the whole world. Takahashi crowed. Shut up, Nathi said, lowering the gun and jamming it up against his crutch. Unless you want to bleed to death slowly from a bullet hole in your hairy balls. Even more sensational. I'll take it. Takahashi grinned. Unathi ignored him. This writing you do, Haruki. Yeah. Ever do art critiques? I haven't, but I see where you're going. What? Takahashi said, panicky. No. No. No, no. This is a time for action, not words. I'm thinking the suicide hair thing is interesting, but, you know... Nathi paused for effect, then rolled her eyes. It's so derivative. No! Takahashi yelped. Shock for shock's sake, Nathi continued. So tired. So very. Don't say it! Don't you dare! So very Damien Hurst, she finished. Takahashi tore his hair. I am nothing but that hack. You can't do this to me. Already doing it, Haruki said, tapping away at his phone. I'm uploading a scathing review to all the art sites right now. Have, have mercy, Takahashi moaned. Sorry, friend. Haruki shrugged, not looking up from his screen. I guess the text message is mightier than the mass-produced pop art gimmick. Takahashi grabbed Unathi's hand, wrenched the gun up to his temple, and, before she had time to react, pulled the trigger. A bright twist of blood arced away from his temple. The artist's lips twitched in the faintest of smiles, and then he keeled over sideways, revealing the bloody mash where the back of his head had once been. His blood started to mingle with the swirl of colors on the grass, muddying the bright hues. Unathi looked down at the body. Eesh, she said. That's done it. Watch out, said the cat. Unathi and Haruki stepped back just in time to avoid being knocked down by the scramble of neon jumpsuits, fighting each other to get to the top of the globulous seeming heap of color. The battle was ugly. The hungry artists climbed over each other, dragged each other down, punched each other in the face and the throat, and then they broke out their knives. After a while, it got too messy to tell who was actually wounded and who was slathered in paint. We should leave, the cat said. The succession fight is only going to get nastier. But the whole world is fucked. Takashi's dead. Nothing gave the body a kick to emphasize her point, adding some of the artist's blood to the congealing stain on her boot. His reputation is going to grow. The haunted hairballs will only become more powerful. Nah, said the writer. You know I'm in a suicide after a bad review. That's not a scandalous death that will lead to centuries-long infamy. That's just a pathetic publicity stunt. 
and his former students in Factory College will be the first to fade. It's over. The hairballs will eventually shrivel up and die, or get bought up by advertising agency execs to display in their foyers. He added, but only ironically. Ouch! Nothing shuddered. He added, Yup. Should we get back? I don't know about you, but I could murder some spaghetti. Early lunch? Nothing checked your watch. It was only twelve. But then, hey, Tokyo was a fast city. They started walking away into the forest, back towards the bunker, the cat riding her monkey's shoulder. Behind them, the artists were still engaged in violent infighting. One of them had extracted herself from the melee and was filming the carnage. It would make a great video piece. So why did you leave Johannesburg, if I may ask? Haruki said, heaving open the bunker door. That city? Hey, boo. That city is too fucking crazy. She shook her head, ducking under the dangling foot of the suicide. Hey, you have any idea when whaling season starts? And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. The metal cover version of the Spice Girl song, Wannabe, was by Norwegian rock and metal singer Pelik. You can find more of his work at Pelik.com. And the cover version of Starship's Nothing Gonna Stop Us Now was by UK singer Nick Meredith. You can find more of his work at SoundCloud.com slash Nick Meredith. All other music was by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Happy Mother's Day, folks. And with that, we bring you a special TwitFic winner this week. 100-character story winner, Jeremy Saul, from the Drabblecast forums, brings you this story. We've got some fantastic news for you today. You have the body of someone half your age. But it's growing inside your womb. 100 character stories, not counting spaces, we call them twabbles. And we have a weekly contest in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org under the TwitFix section where you can post and you can win. Give it a shot, it's fun, it's easy, it's quick, and you might be on next week's show. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that was our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. We run off the generous support of listeners such as yourself, so consider donating to the Drabblecast by going to our website, www.drabblecast.org, and clicking the PayPal buttons there at the top. We greatly appreciate it. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Carolyn Parkinson. Always does a great job. Our program was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our Art Director Bo Kyer, our Guest Editor this month, Nikki Drayden, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you that looking in your eyes, I see a paradise.
every five minutes. A transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.